So many times we hear people say that it was the politician or it was the music that shaped the generation. Is it possible it was the food? Hey, it's Arrow, inside the Arbeats Radio studio at rbeats.com, unplugged and totally uncut with Jonathan Kaufman. This is an interesting book in the way that my, my daughter, who isn't a hippie, is very much doing what your book is doing, and I cannot wait to find out how the millennials are going to adopt this book. I think they're going to really see that, that there were people before them. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it was a fascinating time. Fascinating time in the way that, that Americans just wanted to go back to being simple again, or what was the true psychology of everything that was taking place in that moment? I think it was a combination of disillusionment with the uh, political situation at the time, and um, and you know, 1968 was just a really traumatic year for everyone in America, uh, and so they they wanted to absent themselves from from politics and from in you know from processed foods and from anything that sort of smacked of capitalism. But it was also um, this idealism where they really were trying to em- embrace healthier ways of being, and and they were so idealistic that they they came up with this this new diet that was based on whole grains and vegetables and and things like tofu yeah. and they taught themselves collectively how to make it when 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 you go back and you do the investigating and you and the research and everything like that to put a book like this together all of a sudden you have a new view of who the hippie was don't you because it wasn't all about you know the the birth of a, AOR which is album oriented rock and it was it was more than just you know smoking pot there really was a lifestyle here yeah, in fact, some of the some of the people I talked to who who lived at that time hated the term hippie, yep. and so I actually got into some fights with people <laughs> over the over the term hippie food. But as somebody who grew up in the '70s, where it was kind of thrust, the food was thrust upon me, and they were sort of this older generation. I really didn't give them enough credit for uh, for the creativity and also the drive that they had to to make these you know this movement come to life. What's really interesting about this, I'm from the state of Montana, and so uh, coming up in the hippie movement, I was still too young for that, but it does explain why my family was doing what we were doing because in essence we were living off the land and that's that's pretty much what your book is about is that you know it's, it's giving it back to the to the land lovers and stuff you know going back to the landers yeah yeah, there was a huge out-migration from cities to the to small towns. Um, it, part of this, you know, disillusionment with the American society was this idea that they wanted to create their own society, and so uh, they wanted smaller communities that were, you know, that weren't, you know, driven by capitalism. And so, uh, you know, m- millions of people moved to smaller towns, or even the few folks who were in there, and they tried to take control of their diet. You know, what, we, we, we keep talking about the politics and everything like that. Was, was the way that they, did they see it as a spiritual cleansing kind of tool? Because, I mean, I mean as, as people pick up this book and want to read it, first of all, they're going to think that there's recipes in there, but it goes deeper than that. Yeah, there were some spiritual elements to certain certain parts of it. I think vegetarianism was driven both by politics, this idea that what we eat, uh, we can we can solve global hunger by reducing our meat consumption, but also you know the interest in in Indian Indian and East Asian spirituality yeah. and many of those traditions are vegetarian drove people to give up eating meat. Was was that inspired by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones going over there to be to go to India and stuff? I mean, do you think? Oh, definitely. I thought so. Yep. Yeah. 
There you go. Some of the, I mean, the forms, some of the forms that the, the romanticism over Indian culture and spirituality could take were a little comical, um, and they were definitely influenced by the Beatles. But at the same time, it, it led a lot of uh, young Americans to adopt new ways of thinking and also new flavors. Jonathan, don't you see this happening in America right now, even as we speak, which proves how important this book is? I do. I think that, well, a, a lot of these ideas that motivated the counterculture in 1960, you know, 68, really motivate us now as, as well when we sort of look at the fear of, of you know, industrial farming and the, the ways that it might be affecting the land and the environment and the fear of, you know, processed food and this desire to eat more healthfully. I think those are all exactly the same motivations. So when they were building this community back there from 68 forward, the, the rest of the nation didn't really kind of support them. How were they able to stay so strong and and to be able to move through with this movement I think uh, there were so many of them. The baby right. boom generation was such a you know demographic juggernaut that they kind of they they built their own businesses and there were enough of them to support them. Uh, but also, I think that they you know they they were immune from ridicule in many ways because because they were committed to this you know sort of living a more creative life. Regionally speaking, did you see a difference in the food? You know, the, the hippies of Chicago who decided they were going to do something in 68 at the convention to the hippies that were in San Francisco where George Harrison had a big problem with them. Actually, I didn't. I did not find it was a, a very uniform diet from country to country, really? you know, from from east to west coast, from small town to big city. That was what was so fascinating to me about it. It was a grassroots movement that was happening everywhere. There was no social network. How did the word that? That's like a joke getting from one side of the country to the other. How did something like this get out? I think it was because the baby boom generation traveled in a way their parents never did. I mean, they hitchhiked all over the country. Right. They um, they didn't have the internet, but they certainly had. Ta- they talked, and they were so committed to political organizing and to these you know long consensus-based decision-making processes where they would argue over every small element that they just talked this new diet into into existence. You know, you speak about the hit- hitchhiking and things, and I start getting these flashbacks of the pictures of the hippies, and and most people would look at them say, well, they looked unhealthy, when in reality, if they were eating like this, they were very healthy. Yeah. There was so much fear that they weren't eating enough protein, and that's why a lot of those early dishes were like all beans plus cheese plus nuts, because they were, they were determined that they weren't going to waste away. Would you say that this was also the birth of veganism as well? Uh, I think it was. Um, I don't think the veganism really took hold uh, as sort of a, a lifestyle connected to animal rights movement in the 1990s. But there were some definitely some early vegan communes and, and early vegan uh, cookbooks. What what I loved about about reading the book is the fact that I start, I wanted to really start listening to some Simon and Garfunkel and some other folk music to find out if they <laughs> spoke the language of food because you you've opened up my eyes on this and now I want to know if they if they hit it in their lyrics as well. Oh, man, I haven't gone back and listened to those old albums. I I should probably do that myself. (laughs) So what took so long to release a book like this? Because this is something that we should have been taking note of as we jumped into this new millennium. I think it's because so many people who write about food, and this would have included myself 15 years ago, um looked at the food and just thought, oh, it wasn't tasty. It was something that we were rebelling right. against. We were, we were, you know, we're so obsessed with chefs and restaurant-driven food and beautiful food that we forget, you know, 
here was a generation that was just trying to make food that was healthy and nourishing and, you know, and every day. I, I, I'm, I'm such a, a, a foodie when it comes to tofu. And there's, you know, it's like Whole Foods. There, there are so many different styles of tofu nowadays that you can't help but be addicted to it. It's pretty amazing. And you forget that like tofu in, in 1970, you know, if you were a vegetarian, you had to cook every single bean yourself rather, you know, and tofu was like this, this invention or not an invention. It, it had been around in Japanese and Chinese American communities, but it was this revelation because you could take it out of the package and cook it up quickly. Yeah. So now that you've done the research and you see that there's, a, there's changes happening even today, do you see that build a better body, build a better mind and a lot more physical, political leaders will come out of the general? that we're currently in? Because, I mean, you physically went through this book. You know what to see where the rest of us are just learning. I certainly hope so. I mean, I think that, you know, I, it made me really think about the dietary movements that we call fads now yeah. and think about them in new ways because, you know, hippie food was certainly, you know, poo-pooed as this as sort of a, a fashion and, and, and some elements went away, but there, a lot of their ideas about a food really stuck around. And so I look at new diets and I think, well, what is there in there that makes sense that, that, that it might have some longevity? How did they get by that ugly taste of tofu back then? Were they still trying to disguise it? Uh, no. Well, thankfully, in the 1970s, uh, in, in sort of in the mid-70s, so many of them were traveling to Europe and Asia that they, right. they embraced a whole lot of new flavors that, uh, that Americans hadn't been cooking before. And so by incorporating, you know, uh, South Asian, East Asian flavors, Latin American flavors, they were able to make this new cuisine a lot tastier than it was, you know, just five years a before. Pow- a powerful statement that you bring up in your book is food for people, not for profit. I, that, you know, as you know, right here in this country where everything is for profit that's kind of an interesting statement yeah that was such a that's that that slogan was was everywhere in the food co-op movement because people were trying to you know have these collectively run businesses and unfortunately the food business is one of the lowest profit margin businesses around and so you know they were hoping that food co-ops were going to change capitalism and unfortunately you know for them uh capitalism kind of stuck around and so uh many of them had to to adopt Um, in order to survive, and and the way they did that was by raising prices. Hey, if you'd like to find out more about Jonathan Kaufman and his book, Hippie Food, get it right now. rbeats.com, R-B-E-A-T-Z.com. Unplugged and totally uncut, always on demand.